This is Multinew Media. Hi, Christopher. How are you? I'm good, Chase. How are you doing today? I'm I'm good. It has been, I don't know uh, the number of episodes, but it's been a while since I've uh, been able to to get a spot in your schedule. I'm feeling a little bit, um, I don't know, sniff, sniff. Uh, I just, I just feel like I don't rate on your schedule anymore. Well, you know, we're in the last quarter of the year. So consider this me coming home for the holidays. <laughs> I, I love it. Um, yeah, I just wanted to give you a hard time and, uh, you know, we've been talking off air before and didn't give you a hard time at all. I thought I'm going to save that. No, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with, I am glad to have you back though. And we, we want to talk today a little bit about the world that could have been. Ooh, I should. Mm, yes. Should I put what, some? What? I need music there. I have no music. I don't have a soundboard. I know we did a dun dun dun, or, or that sad violiny kind of music or something, right? Yeah. So I mean, people have made predictions. Uh, we've had visionaries. We've had secular and religious prophets. We've had all sorts of people that say, "Here's what the world will, or should, or could be." And you know, most of these visions go unrealized. So today we want to talk about the visionaries, the idealists, the whatever you want to call them, that we wish had been right. Yeah, and I think visionaries sometimes fall into maybe two categories, not to be too broad with it, but you have visionaries who make predictions that will never come true. And then there are visionaries that make predictions that could still come true, but maybe just their timeline was off. Or we just haven't gotten there yet. So in some cases, it's kind of there's still a glimmer of hope. And in other cases, the door is closed and it's just never going to happen. Right. Right. You know, I I don't know how we want to proceed. I'm eager to get into my list. So maybe we just start. I'm going to start with with a – I have a couple here, as I mentioned to you before we began recording, that that are kind of depressing. Can can we get those out of the way? I think we're going to start with a depressing one. Okay. And so – I'm going to do a double dip. I'm going to, I'm going to give you two um, to tie together. And the first one, I'm going to go back to 1893 okay, and Havelock wow. Ellis, um, a English scientist who was speaking with um, a guy named Hiram Maxim. And Hiram Maxim is the inventor of the machine gun. And hmm. Havelock Ellis uh, said to Hiram, Will the machine gun not make war more terrible? And here a maxim said, no, it will make war impossible. Mm-hmm. The idea being that the technology of the machine gun would basically bring war to an end because it would be over so quickly. Um, and I'm tying this in. That was 1893. Let, let's jump ahead to 1912. And Marconi, where Marconi said the coming of the wireless era will make war impossible because it will make war <laughs> ridiculous because Marconi believed that due to the communication lines being opened up by wireless mm-hmm. communication that there would be no war. So we have two very different, obviously, viewpoints. One is we'll end it quicker so there'll be no war. And one is communication will be better so there is no war. And obviously this is very depressing because you think that's 1893 – that's 1912. We've made bigger, badder, faster weapons since Maxim, and we've made clearer, easier, more user-friendly communication than Marconi could ever have dreamed of, and yet we still have war. So despite all of our technological advances, 
we still haven't stopped the fact that people just kill each other. So there's a nice depressing way to kick <laughs> off the show. It's it is depressing. We we see that followed up um, in the 20th century later with um, nuclear weapons. The idea of um, a nuclear weapon being an ultimate deterrent against war, and <laughs> you know, it's more or less just a hey, you can do anything shy of that. Don't push that button. And we're hearing the same conversation now about putting artificially intelligent robotics into battle and starting to get a, an international legal framework around that. And I mean, how how strange is that, that we have discussions about international frameworks and laws for wars that say, okay, here's how you can and cannot kill people. That's just it's so weird. It, it, it's just, you know, a, a, again, it's one of those things where you, you think, you know, as as we as a society advance, you know, as technology advances, you know, there will not be a need for war because we'll yeah. have, you know, greater understanding or just greater capability to, to keep it from happening. And yet somehow still haven't cracked that nut yet. Like, so, again, depressing, but but there's always hope. No, there is that hope. And, and you and I used to teach um, the same technology class for a while. And one of the materials that we had um, for for some students was information about how people thought that hypertext and what we now know of as the World Wide Web today, that when that level of hypertext and um, information exchange to where one topic can lead to the next without necessarily needing to know where it is or who found it out, but you can get the reference, uh, that whole thing. There were, uh, for hundreds of years, we've, we can find predictions basically saying, you know, that's going to bring an end to poverty, to famine, to war. And we, we just know it to be wrong. I mean, look what's going on with the web now. It's, it's helping people fight even more. And we have cyber warfare, not just at, you know, school kids bullying school kids levels, but also major international action so yeah thanks for starting us on off uh thanks for starting us off on a depressing note happy 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 <laughs> since you're talking about machine guns and destruction i'm gonna go with a really bad selection that i put on my list and this is alexander the great alexander the great founded alexandria and founded a series of alexandrias across the lands and territories that he conquered and the vision for Alexandria, all of them, plural, was to have these cosmopolitan cities where different cultures and peoples could blend together and study and in um, scholarship and and study um, whatever they needed to study. And this is the idea that we're told about Alexandria, but it's it's also a little bit depressing, like yours, in the sense that we all know that yes. Uh, the idea was to bring people together in this cosmopolitan way, but really at the the end of the day, it was also about feeding the ego of Alexander the Great. I don't necessarily know if you have to come about something the right way in order for the the thing you're inventing to be right. You know, if you come and you invent artificial intelligence for war, but then we outlaw it for that, then artificial intelligence can still be great. And if you build... Alexandria, because you want a lasting memento to your name, it can still be a great thing. So that's that's one of the first places. I mean, admittedly, it's a little bit of a guilty trip. Everybody knows I'm a big fan of the historical character of Alexander the Great, but he he kind of popped on my mind first uh, 
when we were talking about this list of visionaries? Well, it's interesting too, because it just brings back the whole, it's not the technology, it's the user. You know, you, you can find, I mean, you know, and again, this isn't on my list, but and I wasn't going to bring this up. You know, people always talk about nuclear energy, you know, and the dangers and the uses and the destructive uses. And I mean, I'll even, I'll bring up a Star Trek one for us just because. Oh, please do. Why not? Genesis could take a dead planet and give it life. Yeah, the Genesis, well, Genesis could also destroy a planet. Again, it's, it's it, who, whose hands is the technology in? Um, again, not pulling out a soapbox here, but. Technology advances, knowledge gains are good things. It's when people use them for the wrong purposes that we have problems. Yeah, that's the big problem. And and there is another problem. I'm thinking back to the answer I just gave. And if someone's kind of scratching their head, maybe you don't know a lot of the story of Alexandria and Alexander the Great. You may be wondering, well, how did that fail? I know of Alexandria. It's in Egypt, right? Some of these cities still remain. And um, we'll talk about something a little bit later. If you don't know the history of why that can be considered a failure, um, I'll bring another example up. But I'm going to save that. It's a teaser. (laughs) A teaser. (laughs) Uh, I'm trying to decide if I should go depressing with my next choice or not. No, you know what? I would say let's get the depressing out of the way. But wow, we need something on a a positive note right now. Okay, so I'm going to go with one that uh, has not happened yet but could still happen in the future. So I'm going to go back to October 1970. Uh, David Warwick in Playboy magazine, little shout out there to the Daily Departed Hugh Hefner. Hmm. Um, he wrote, talking about technology in the future, uh, that by the mid-80s, so he was looking 15 years ahead at this point, uh, automated autos, noiseless pneumatic subways, and luxury liner hovercraft will have radically restructured our surface mobility. Hmm. We're not there yet. Not quite. But we're getting a little bit closer. And this goes, and I could really make a blanket statement going back decades to everyone who has predicted the flying car, to everyone who has predicted, you know, super trains, to everyone who has predicted hover, real hovercrafts, real, you know, um, we've, Gotten a little bit closer, a little bit closer. The timelines for these predictions obviously have been way off. Yeah. Uh, people predicting in the 50s that we'd have it by the 70s, 70s by the 80s, go so on and so forth, you know, 25, 25, what have you. But again, this is a prediction that a lot of people have made. I just picked out the, the Warwick quote because I came across it. But not impossible. It could still happen. It just would have been great had they been right with their timelines and we actually had already gotten to that point. Yeah, I I think, you know, a couple episodes ago I was talking about artificial intelligence as a part of cloud computing in a, in a speech I'm putting together for a lecture series. And I was mentioning a statistic that m- makes me think of what you're talking about with the timelines there, of how people have been off on these timelines. Occasionally you get these these people who just get it, right? They they um, They... Pin it down. My reference was, you know, 1969, John Pierce at Bell Labs talking about, you know, we're going to need to have uh, decades before we get to uh, true voice recognition and usefulness because we need artificial intelligence first to make it useful. And I think that, um, oh, I'm blanking on the name. What's David Rorvik? Yeah. Uh, David Rorvik. I'm, I'm not familiar with that. I'm going to have to look him up. But 
when you're talking about David Rorvik um, saying that, okay, just 15 years from now, would it have been technologically possible? A- absolutely. I mean, think what he had just seen. If he's saying this in, in October 1970, he just observed the United States putting a man on the moon within the decade. I mean, that's the mindset of 1970. So I, I think possible, yes. But at the same time, uh, I think what why we're going through this list is to teach us that utopia is great, but utopia does mean nowhere. Uh, and it's a, it's a state of mind that truly can't ever be... Um, created in the real world necessarily i mean so are we going to have luxury um you know these luxury trains sure maybe but we have to remember that on that depressing side think about your machine gun item somebody's going to want to derail it for some reason uh so i i think a measured pace in adopting these technologies is good not just for our security but for our sanity as well true uh and again you made a great point which i hadn't even thought about with, with rorvik it's one of those things where yeah, if you say, hey, we're going to do this, and we, well, we pulled this off in 10 years. We went from idea to, you know, iteration to execution in a decade. So surely 15 years is enough time to pull this off from idea to iteration to execution. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, one of the reasons I like this one on my list is because it is still possible. Because oh, some absolutely. of the ones I'm going to come up with, unfortunately, are not possible at all. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't think I'm going to be driving in 20 years. Uh, I don't I just, I mean, I'll, I'll be in a car. I'll probably still buy a car, maybe rent, whatever the situation changes to that, that we still have to figure out. And look, car companies are investing a lot of money into that right now. But um, I just don't, I don't see myself doing any interstate driving more than another decade or two. Well, and again, look at the car innovations we're seeing. I mean, you know, the automatic braking, the automatic parking, you know, the self-driving cars, I mean, you know, they're becoming more and more feasible and eventually it's going to happen. Yeah. It's just a matter of time. So he, he had a good one. He was just way early. Now, so what I was teasing before when I was talking about Alexand, um, Alexandria is, uh, is somebody else I want to put in here very quickly. And this would be the historical character of Hypatia. And Hypatia, if you're not familiar, was someone who lived in Alexandria a couple hundred years after its founding, was um, the daughter of, I believe, an astronomer, and she herself was a Neoplatonic rationalist. She was very well known as a scientist and a philosopher in the city of Alexandria. And if you know anything about her story, she was ultimately killed for being a a quote-unquote pagan, which I guess... Neoplatonic rationalists were were lumped in with pagans, but she was killed by a group of fundamentalist Christians for essentially starting a little bit of a conflict using her, you know, rational thinking. Um, but, you know, I put her on this list not even truly knowing if she had any vision um, for the future or not knowing what it was. I haven't read enough about her yet. I'm familiar with the historical character. But I want to put her on this list because she embodied her vision. You know, she was in a predominantly male-led culture, um, and she didn't let any of that get to her. She said, I'm going to go into the sciences. I'm going to lead the school of Neoplatonic thought in Alexandria, and she did. And she went to civic meetings when other women weren't necessarily allowed, and she lived her vision, and it's my hope it's my hope that she had a vision for the world being a little bit more egalitarian, a little more rational, obviously, not necessarily in the sense of being 
uh, platonic, but um, being more rational and logical. And uh, I just want to I want to put her in here because I mentioned Alexander the Great in the last pick, and she's the great follow up of Alexandria. Didn't necessarily work out. War, conflict, strife, murder, all of these things took place in Alexandria. And right now, uh, not all of the Alexandrias remain. We know that, and and some are under what what some people might consider some interesting occupations. But they worked out for what they needed to be um, at the time they needed to be. And we know Alexander's lands were carved up after his death. But some good did come out of it, such as Hypatia. She was a witch, Chase. She was a witch. <laughs> yeah, no, she would definitely was. Um, she was, a lot of people claimed that. She yeah. she um, was called a heretic and a witch and a pagan and a this and a that. I mean, I, one of the few people that, given the chance to go back in a time machine, we all think about the people we go and like punch in the face, you know, like, oh, that, <laughs> that stupid character from, you know, this, this, um, this time period or, you know, so-and-so shot someone, I'd go and punch them and prevent them from doing all those things. We think there are very few people I want to go back and I just want to meet and have a long discussion with and Alexander the Great and Hypatia, even though they're from two different time periods, uh, those are two of those people I'd love to love to talk to. I just, whenever I hear a story like about Hy- like Hypatia, I always think like, and how much innovation did we flush down the toilet by doing that, people? Exactly. And so whether she had a particular vision that she espoused for the future, and again, I need to read more of uh, not just things about her, but anything she may have created. I don't even know what's out there in all honesty. Uh, so if anybody knows, email me. Let me know. I'm, she's She's definitely a character I'm interested in. But she just lived a vision, and I think she's list worthy for that, if nothing else. Absolutely. Good pick. Now I'm going to go, should I go uh, depressing, impossible, or kind of humorous? Those are the categories. Uh, I'm curious about the humorous, but I'm going to leave the decision up to you. It's just that's, that's. I'm curious what that can mean. All right, I'm going to do the depressing one, I guess, to get it out of the way. <laughs> I want humorous, people, you're going depressing. I love it. Go. Hopefully people won't turn off the episode after hearing my next depressing No, one, because so. they get better from here. Yes, they do. No more depressing after this. Uh, just impossible and humorous. So William H. Stewart, 1969, Surgeon General of the United States. We can close the book on infectious diseases. Oh, I don't think that's depressing. I, I think that is still aspirational to this day. It's aspirational, but to think that at that point in 1969, and again, you had to look at the situation. You had to look at all the diseases that were stomped out all the diseases that vaccinations or cures or treatments have been created for. And yeah, 1969, things were feeling pretty good, you know, and then unfortunately other diseases were discovered and whatnot. And we haven't obviously stomped down and closed the book on infectious diseases, but I like your turning it around. You're right. There's still hope. There's still time. It just kind of said that in 1969, William Stewart and and obviously many people thought, hey, we're close to the finish line of figuring all this out. But the truth is we're still running the race. You know, I, I think to a degree maybe we will finish the race. But then you, what do you do when you finish a race? You start training for the next one. And what I mean by that is there's this little thing called evolution. And, you know, we, we could beat every single thing that's out there. But I don't know if within a reasonable time frame, you know, 
us, our children, our children's children, and, and keep going down that list for a while. I don't know if we're going to figure out the the real destination point of how we how we do that. But I think, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, maybe one day we're going to see people will look back at us and say, how did they deal with, you know, all of these infectious diseases and other things, not just infectious cancers uh, and, and autoimmune systems problems. And they'll look and they'll say, that's scary in the same way we look at, you know, tuberculosis and um, just tremble in fear almost. True. And, and you know, well, I'm not going to pull out my soapbox about medical technology and science versus uh, some people's homespun ideas about, you know, <laughs> diseases. Yeah. I will not do that. I will not do that. Well, you know, I'm, I haven't been on it for a while and I need to get back on it. I've been too busy, but I, I follow a ketogenic diet and it's been really good for me, re- done really well. And it's when I'm off, I, I feel sick. What was that show? You know, fat, sick, and nearly dead or something. And But they were promoting juicing, which blah, whatever. Another uh, ketogenic is scientific. That stuff's not. And I heard the other day that a bunch of keto, um, or several, I don't know how many. Uh, so we'll call them a bunch. What is a bunch? Three, four, five. However many went to one of those autism conferences where those types of people tend to congregate, you know? And a whole host of other people do, right? Serious medical professionals do, parents of autistic children, siblings of autistic family members, right? All sorts of people go, but it kind of bugged me a little bit that they were choosing that venue and and sometimes sharing stages with those, uh, I don't know, can we call them wackadoos? Can we use the term wackadoo? I think we can use the term I think we can use the term wackadoo. I think it's safe here. Wackadoos, definitely. (laughs) Sorry, I just completely hijacked your... uh... It's okay. And then where were we? Where were um, we before I hijacked? We were clo- we were closing away my my last depressing one, of course, closing the book on infectious diseases. Oh. And we were going to go more positive to you now. So I I'm going to pick uh, Victor Grun. Victor Grun is known for being hated in the sense that he invented the concept of the shopping mall, and I, I put him on this list because I wish he wasn't wrong. I wish the vision that he had for the shopping mall and for urban revitalization, you know, back in the 1960s, I wish that it had been the correct solution at the correct time. And, you know, to this day, not not to bring politics into it, but I do hear a lot of conservatives just bashing this urban revitalization concept of the 60s. I mean, it is a, if if you're not familiar with American politics, and I mean, if you're an American and you just kind of vote one way or the other, claim you're this or that, you've got to go back to the 1950s and 60s as post-World War II world to get a real understanding of most of our fundamental divides. And what to do with cities is one of them. Now, we all love to dream about these futuristic cities, but Victor Grun had some ideas of how it should be laid out what type of transportation we needed to put in place, how retail and commerce fit in. And there are these projects. Christopher, you and I just toured one over in the Lake Nona area in Orlando. Uh, There are a couple of of pilot cities over near Tampa that are integrating this type of idea of how should a residential neighborhood be laid out, how should the energy grid be laid out inside of it, how do people get their health care and their food. Victor Grun was, I think a genius way ahead of his time and um a little bit of trivia here i'm going to add a i'm going to add a bonus selection in on this one 
If you're familiar with the idea of something we talk about on the show occasionally because we both love it, Epcot, Walt Disney's Epcot, right? This the city that Walt Disney was going to build here in the Central Florida area that turned into a, a theme park. We all know my favorite theme park. But what it was supposed to be was this city. And so think of Epcot in your mind. Go look at Epcot, uh, pictures of it on, on Google if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about. Look at the original sketches for what Epcot was to be with an industrial center and this spoken hub type residential area. And a lot of people just look at that and go, oh, he's using theme park design in a city. Uh, he being Walt Disney in this case. Absolutely not. Walt Disney was lifting every bit of that almost verbatim from Victor Grun, who in the early 1960s, and this is one of my prized book possessions, published a book called The Heart of Our Cities and how this whole layout should happen. And so I, I, in my deepest heart of hearts, wish that Victor Grun had been right about how the shopping mall should evolve rather than how it did and how we could revitalize our urban areas and kind of combine this urban, suburban, just, I don't know, think utopian city. And I, I think that vision was amazing. I hope in the future he'll come out to be right. I think we will. I mean, again, the problem with, with you know, usually a utopian society is at some point greed steps in uh, and a desire to, you know, separate caste systems or a desire to, you know, have complete control and ownership. And instead of it being a, a community, people working together, it's more of a uh, country club, you know, where <laughs> I'm going to decide who gets to join and who doesn't. Yeah, you know, that's what we see. And, and you know, I kept mentioning the, the community you and I toured. And I stuck around there for a few hours after and looked at the houses and went and talked to some of the home builders. And it was kind of that. It was a very much a country club of, you know, people bend over backwards and go in debt to get in here so that their kids can go to these schools and, and you know, all those selling points. But the other side of it is sometimes if you go too much with centralized planning, it may end up being like Soviet Russia and just corruption all the way through. So you have a capitalist nightmare on one end of this spectrum and you have a socialist nightmare on the other end of the spectrum. And I do think a happy balance in between of of keeping the decision making power in the hands of the people is very important. Uh, otherwise, you're absolutely right. You end up in a in a dystopia of, of some type just pick your economic system and you got one on one end one on the other yeah it's it's getting that middle of the road between those two extremes to actually work but you know if you you could have a little yard though and get on a little people mover and go to a little train and go right up to work (laughs) you know i i dream about these things how's that be little can it be a big train it can be a big train it can be a giant train all right. Um, now I'm done with my depressing. So good. It's about my, time. I have my funny, humorous, and I have my my impossible. So let's. I'm going to do the impossible first. You're going to make me wait for this humorous. Okay, go impossible. Okay. 1911. Thomas Edison. It will be an easy matter to convert a truckload of iron bars into virgin gold. Yes, Thomas Edison figured alchemy would be perfected. Uh, not so much. <laughs> you know, I I have this weird thought, and I'd have to quantify this in some way, but I think we're going to get there. I think we'll have some pretty true alchemy in the future, but it's not like people think when you say the word alchemy. But yeah, 1911 
He thought it'd be soon. He was wrong. Yeah, I mean, it, not anytime soon. And and while I mean, it, it chemically it could be possible at some point. We're still a ways off from perfecting that one. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're you're into molecular manufacturing by the point you can do that, and you're breaking everything down to the subatomic. The you know, what is it? Twelve subatomic particles that we know of that have mass. You're building up from building blocks at that point. But think of what that would do to the commodities markets. What's the value of gold if you can synthesize it out of, you know, whatever, anything? True. I mean, it, and again, just not gold. I mean, obviously we think gold, 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 but any material, you know. The, the the idea that you could synthesize, you know, any material from another material, just the idea of the environmental concerns that it brings in, we would mean not having necessarily to to rip mine things and, and allow the recyclable world to change. And there's so many benefits to it, if it were. So do possible. you think we ever will get anything like a replicator? In my lifetime, I don't know. Yeah, I'm <laughs> I not, don't know. I mean, I know we have some pretty advanced 3D printing, but I'm not I'm not holding my breath to say tea earl gray hot not in, not not in my lifetime maybe my grandkids i don't know we'll see yeah we'll see because that 3d printer kind of kind of when, when the first time i saw the 3d printer that threw me for a loop i must say have that you, made me go wow have you looked at the ones that um print uh you know they're printing organs now and using them in um in uh lab animals I have not seen those. Yeah, we're, we're getting. We want to be able to print organ replacements so that we don't have to harvest um, harvest from the recently deceased. That way, a minim, minimal chance of rejection. By the way, if we do that, I definitely need to look that up. That yeah. sounds cool. So, when you said within your lifetime, you don't think we'll see this. Does that kind of let me know which one I need to go to next? I only have two more on my list, and I need to go to Arthur C. Clarke right now. Arthur C. Clarke, um, he's he hasn't been departed from us for what it's been about ten years now, maybe. And in the 1960s, you can go to YouTube and you can see all these wonderful videos about how he just, even in the 60s, he just understood how computers would pan out. He talked about a high definition television with a keyboard in front of it. Like I have that, you know, and he talked about these these devices you'd carry around and how the phones would work and be mobile and even talked about smartwatches and how you'd make calls from them and, and leave your telephone behind. We, we know all of that. I mean, I'm sure we go around YouTube if we're interested in this topic and watch these things. But one of his one of his ideas was about telecommunications and about telecommuting. And if anyone's a longtime listener of the show, they know I'm a big proponent. I'm a big advocate for telecommuting and Arthur C. Clarke's phrase don't commute communicate is something that I'm hopeful that we will revitalize we already are revitalizing this it's coming to fruition it's coming to pass but I I really think there should be a a movement behind this idea of don't commute communicate it's better for the planet and Arthur C. Clarke just would give Wonderful reasons for why we should do this, about how it's not more productive to meet in one particular space. But he'd also things like say things like, if you want to cause the traffic pro- or excuse me, cure the traffic problem, the, the solution isn't to pave the earth with more lanes, it's to remove the traffic. And commu- um, telecommuting is one wonderful way to do that. So I just think I, I truly wish Arthur C. Clarke had been right there. And one more, just as a nod to him, he he wanted to see the first signs of evidence of alien life before he passed away. And I wish he would have been right about that. I wish he would have been able to see that because I wish we knew with certainty 
that there was intelligent life out there ready to communicate with us. So Arthur C. Clarke for those two reasons. Yeah, your first one, and again, you know, it brings back that, that whole point about control that some people don't want to let go of. I believe, I agree, it should be communicating. It should not be commuting. Um, so many jobs can be done remotely. There's no need to harvest people into a building and only permit them to perform the task in this building. Mm-hmm. This is the only building you can perform the task in. You must you must commute to this building, enter this building to complete this task. Uh, but again, businesses that don't want to allow their employees to telecommute, if you will, or work from home or work remote or however you want to phrase it, are usually ones that want to have a lot of control. They're the micromanagers of the world. They're the people that have to have their constant finger, maybe because – they don't trust themselves, so they don't trust the people that work with them. There's that possibility. I mean, we all know that the one true exception that we can't ever get around is things where you need some type of physical presence because we don't have robots yet who can substitute. We need, you know, a human in a medical emergency to make a split-second decision. Those types of things we get. But, you know, we're t- graphic designers, people who are working on, uh, you know, corporate finances, we do all of our filing online these days anyway why do you need to be in an office is it really making you that much more productive for the times where you say yes do what christopher and i do go into the office and when the and when the answer is no just do the work so are you ready for for the humor i'm so ready for the humor i need i need it after our depressing picks it's probably not nearly as funny now as it would have been because you know we've hyped it up so much and I got to apologize. I'm sorry I got to hit you with this, Bill. But Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, 2004. Two years from now, spam will be solved. Oh. Sorry, Bill. But you said it. Why couldn't he be right? You know, you talk about one you wish was right. And we've, I mean, no matter how many filters, no matter how many blocks, lists, different little tools they come up with for servers and emails and whatnot. It's like you build, you know, a better mouse trap, you know, the mouse evolves into a bigger creature somehow. As much as people try, you still have not killed spam. Oh, I wish you were right, Bill. I wish you had been right back in 2004, but here I am in 2017 still dealing with it. I mean, I will give him a little bit of credit as, as much as I may be in a, in a, um, you know, break up with Microsoft for the most part at the moment. I will say that I do run all of my email through them because I I don't I get spam, but I don't see as much of it. The only problem that I think, you know, some of these major services like Exchange and and Gmail are having trouble with is filtering out the unsolicited but not quite spam messages, right? Not the auto sent, just you know, people. Um, people doing what people do. I'm I'm not saying I don't do it too, but uh some of those are are not so great at filtering out. Uh, and and in their defense, even Microsoft's little um their little Mailchimp competitor that's part of the Office suite, I sent out a, a test blast email from it to myself, and do you know what uh, my Exchange account did? What? F- filed it as junk. <laughs> <laughs> I sent it from a Microsoft service to a Microsoft service, and I was like, "Yeah, this is this is definitely junk." 
So, yeah, no, I wish Bill had been right, but I, I guess we're getting there. My last one, I'm going to throw this in really quick, Buckminster Fuller. Um, most of his work, whether it was the geodesic dome or the uh, Damaxian vehicles, was all about getting the most energy-efficient and most global universal solution for all of humanity rather trying rather than trying to push people into using a design that makes sense for just some small segment of people trying to design and engineer real techno uh, technological solutions that are human in nature and would work for anybody no matter what part of the world you live in no matter what culture you grew up as a part of and then furthermore utilizing the sun's energy as much as possible to confer, to uh, conserve this planet for future generations. So I wanted to end by throwing Buckminster Fuller in there. I wish that his vision for absolute preservation of our energy supply and using only what the sun gives us in our sun revenue or whatever he called it, something similar to that. Uh, I think it was like sun allowance or sun allowance or some some financial term. It was wonderful. And uh, so I, th- I think we have a pretty good list that we've put put together. And if all of these people had had turned out to not be wrong or at least off the mark or in the wrong time frame, I think we may be living in a wonderful world. I was about to say, should we should we queue up wonderful world right now to play us out there? <laughs> I may just do that. I may just break every bit of copyright I can I can break and do that very thing. So I think it's going to wrap up uh, our list here. And again, if you have some some innovative, I shouldn't say innovators, some people who had a vision that didn't quite happen yet and you're kind of bummed about it, send us an email. Let us know. Yeah, let us know. Feedback at multinewmedia.com. I see skies of blue and clouds of white. The bright blessed day, the dark sacred night, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, take care.